hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. All right, welcome back to the next episode of the BC Law Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. I'm here with Samantha Bear, and we are very fortunate to be joined uh, by two great folks here, two alums, Elizabeth Martin and Jim Warner, uh, who have been involved in uh, recently this this series of articles uh, related to mental health and the law. Just a very important topic that you know we, we really want to focus on. You know, in historically in the legal profession, it's been an, an area that has been uh, underserved and not discussed and really not addressed very well. And you know, in, in today's day and age, it's really important to, to focus on these things and have these conversations. And, you know, these folks were, uh, you know, willing to share their perspectives and in, in, in writing some articles for BC Law Impact. And, you know, it's really good to be able to, you know, take away some of the stigma and have conversations about this stuff. And we're just so fortunate to be joined uh, by Elizabeth and Jim uh, today. Uh, Elizabeth and Jim, how, how are you both? Doing well. Thank you for having us. Very well, thank you. Awesome. Um, well, uh, we didn't want to like sit here and just read through the articles again. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, go to you guys. I guess, um, I guess Elizabeth, we get you pulled up here. We can go, go to you first. If you just want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your background and, and your story and, you know, just, just, just your career and, um, you know, how, how things really went from what you wrote about in your, in your article to what you're doing today and um, anything you'd, you'd want people to know. Sure. Happy to. <clears throat> uh, my name is Elizabeth Martin and I am currently head of strategy and innovation for OptumServe. Uh, Optum is a $5 billion, Optum Service, $5 billion company where we innovate and pilot uh, new ways of delivering care to people um, across the country and across actually the globe. So uh, I wrote the article based on an actual experience that happened in my third year of law school, which was stunning in and of itself. One thing that when you get to your third year, it's uh, relatively smooth sailing other than studying and taking the bar. Uh, so I was quite surprised sort of to be hijacked uh, at that point in my uh, academic career uh, with probably just a few months to go until graduation with a panic attack, where I was confronted with a question on an exam that I didn't know the answer to. Uh, certainly not the first time I uh, had been able to wing it before, but for whatever reason, at that moment, uh, things converged and collapsed and I wasn't able to finish the exam. I actually had to walk out and really experienced uh, the first of what would be many uh, panic attacks. Uh, this had been an ongoing sort of issue in terms of anxiety, increased anxiety. This is not unique or familiar to any law student or any graduate student. <laughs> uh, but it was culminating, I think, with the prospect of graduating, finding work, passing the bar, leaving an academic environment. I had uh, gone straight through uh, from college uh, undergraduate to law school. So I was about to step out into the real world and no clerkship, no uh, sort of extracurricular activities had prepared me for that. And I think everything came to bear in that moment. Um, I would say in terms of I was able to eventually overcome those concerns and those insecurities. And as I said in my, my article, it's because I had to face aspects of myself that I was not able to face at that time. And uh, so I have become a big advocate of practicing uh, law without practicing law. <laughs> I use my law degree every single day. Uh, but the, the normal course of go and work for a law firm, big law, et cetera, was not for me. And as soon as I was able to make that recognition, the panic left. Uh, and then I was able to find a different path. So. Um, I, I just wanted to, and we'll, we'll go to Jim in, in just a second. Um, you know, there's, and, a, and again, I wanted to be careful not to just like read the, the articles um, while we're here, but there is a, a paragraph in here 
that I, you know, noted. It just seems like a really critical inflection point in terms of perspective and, you know, some of the things you're talking about and in, in, in situations that, that folks can find themselves in. Because, of course, you know, these are not things that, um, you know, while they're very normal and very common to, to struggle and, and define yourself in these situations, you know, people don't uh, post them on social media. We don't, we don't talk about these things. We just sort of um, can, can suffer silently, uh, unfortunately. And, you know, you write here, uh, as it turns out, when Panic strode into the room that day, he brought a mirror in tow. At first glance, the image I saw seemed compromised and diminished. A failed law student, an uncompleted exam, a shattered sense of self, a future replete with anxiety and littered with failed opportunities. In time and through help, I came to see that image differently and compassionately, and Elizabeth more authentic and true than the one who had arrived to sit for her exam that day. In the end, it turns out that panic was not the problem, but rather my own inability to recognize it in her for the gifts that they were. Um, I'm just curious if you could just, for a moment, just kind of touch on that spot right there, because that just seems like such a critical uh, moment of, of reflection and obviously just, just discomfort and what was going through your head. I mean, I can imagine a not just this law school and others, there are other students who find themselves in a very similar situation, which is a particularly hard place, you know, especially when you're in the midst of an exam and all the, the pressure that goes along with it. Could you just take us inside that that moment there? Sure. I think one of the challenges around mental health and stigma and not talking about it is we isolate and we think this is only happening to us, right? And, it, and, and our time frame shrinks. I think there was a famous economist that wrote, in the long run, we're all dead, which is probably the worst thing that anybody could say, particularly to a third year, second year or first year law student. There is a long run. And I think what was going on in that moment is when you are in panic, when you can't actually see your way out, everything in your ego tells you to isolate. Like this is only happening to you. This is a failure to you. One of the things that I speak about often, I post it on Facebook. When I go to any new job, I announce my 27 years sobriety. I talk about it. And I talk about it. And what I tried to accomplish in that article is this has been happening since the beginning of humanity. It is not unique to Elizabeth Martin as a third year law student. It is not unique to anybody. We all suffer fear. We all suffer anxiety. Can we suffer less by actually talking about it? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Uh, this won't be the first time that people feel anxious on an exam. Uh, there's the bar exam ahead of you. There are many milestones in work. Um, but understanding that you're not alone in that prospect and that it's a very long road ahead. I think I also mentioned in the podcast, failing that exam did nothing to my career, nothing to my career. And I really want to emphasize that. I felt like it was the end of the world. I went on to have a very successful career, still do. And only until I wrote this blog did I actually go back and remember that I had failed that exam. So the future is there for everybody, particularly if you can link arms, use the resources that are available to you, and actually talk about it. And then you'll realize that you're not alone. That's great. We really appreciate the perspective and, and, and you and you sharing um, on that. Um, do, you, do you want to go to Jim? Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, uh, uh, Jim, uh, so we want to go to you next. Uh, we obviously, you know, have your story as well, and we're really appreciative of you, um, you know, like Elizabeth, you know, really pulling back the curtain and, and, and you know, sharing some 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 tough times with us. And uh, again, just like with Elizabeth, I don't want to just, you know, reread the blog. I want to, you know, sort of let you introduce yourself and, and sort of share your story in, in a way that, that makes the most most sense for you. 
Well, thank you, and I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, I think a lot of what I'm going to say is echoed by what you reason I chose. I, Jim, if I could just pause for a second, we're not yeah. uh, hearing you very clearly. Um, is there? Um, are you on a Bluetooth, or what is your? Um, uh, just I am. Yeah, let me switch, and then I will uh, oh. answer your question again. Okay, thank you. Hello. Hi, Jim. Hey, sorry about that. Guys. Uh, that's crystal that's clear. It's so yeah. much better. Is this better? Yep. It's very good. Great, great. Never buy new earbuds right before a podcast. No safety tips. So, yeah, well, thanks for your question. You know, a lot of what I'm going to say is echoed by what Elizabeth said. Um, you know, my, my career and my struggles with mental health issues, uh, you know, were largely an untold story. You know, there's many of us, I believe, who, particularly in the legal profession, um, outwardly are performing at a very high level, at least to others, yet are suffering silently with various challenges, including mental health issues. And, you know, I know from my own personal experience that when I encountered some of these challenges, my instinct, both personally and as a result of just my legal training, was just to burrow down, work harder, um, try to figure it out, find the solution, and frankly, not involve anybody else. Because, um, you know, you don't, want to admit imperfection and you know there's there's such a high premium in the law on if you will getting things right having the right answer being the advisor being you know a knowledgeable person it's very difficult to reconcile the fact that inside you may feel very insecure or very unsure of yourself or in some cases even feeling like an imposter because you see the gap between you know, what you're meant to be doing, what you think you're doing. So I thought it was very important to share that because I know in talking to others, there's a great amount of shame in this and telling that story um, because there's a certain amount of stigma. You know, there's, uh, if you will, our own sense of professional identity and admitting a weakness and an imperfection uh, can be difficult. And, you know, we... We all struggle with that. So that's become very important to me because I know in my own recovery, the ability to reach out to others who had gone on this journey ahead of me was critical. And I mentioned that in the story, you know, Dan Lukasik and others who literally just said something so simple as, I've been there. Just released all of this unnecessary anxiety and tension and self-doubt and self-criticism that I could see these wonderful people who had walked this journey and were still wonderful people, you know, because at the end of this, what a lot of folks don't realize is, you know, you can be very harsh on yourself, a lot of negative self-criticism, and it's hard to imagine yourself as a decent person as you're going through these dark time, um, and it really challenges who you are, and to see, like I mentioned, you know, just good and strong people who have been vulnerable and open to these imperfections is actually a source of strength to me and to others, so, you know, that's something I think 
is very important to continue in this conversation. And I'm hoping we can get more people involved so that there's more connection points. There's more, um, there's more of an ability for people to see something in someone else that they identify with. Very good. Um, thanks, Jim. Yeah, so um, thank you both. Um, those were great. I have a question for both of you. I think in general, speaking generally, this, our generation um, and the generation of faculty here at BC Law especially really prioritize mental health. We have a lot of programs here. Um, even this Impact blog series has really put a spotlight on mental health. We have a meditation room faculty that facilitate meditation sessions, individual counseling services, mindfulness courses, all of these things. Um, so at the law school level, I think we've made, made great progress um, from maybe when you both went to law school. Uh, but I was wondering what your experience has been like in the professional world when you are sharing these stories. Elizabeth, I know you said um, you often share that you are sober and just what your colleagues' reactions are when you share this with them. It's a, it's a great question, and I want to applaud um, the school and your generation <laughs> for bringing this to the forefront. This, <clears throat> I work in healthcare. Uh, obviously, we are in the midst of a global pandemic. We're not out of it yet. And there's a shadow pandemic that's happened as well, where there's isolation. Uh, there is depression. There is anxiety. There are all these factors. Um, so the fact that you have so many resources available to you are critical. I will say in, in sharing the story, it's very intentional. And this comes from an actual experience. When I decided to I wouldn't say decided, when I got sober, when that, when that choice was sort of thrust upon me, I had very clear ideas that I was not going to go to an AA meeting. That was just not for me. So I called Lawyers Helping Lawyers, and immediately a judge who I had argued in front of showed up in my office, took me to an AA meeting that was filled with colleagues and judges that I worked with every single day. The point of that story is you don't have to look very far to find that you are not alone in this crisis. When I share that I've been sober, when I post on Facebook, um, typically I'm met with shock because it's not something that we do talk about, particularly in my generation. That said, I give it about an hour. And then the emails and the texts and the phone calls and the people stop dropping by my office and say, oh, my husband is struggling with this. I have a child who's going through this. Do you think we could talk about it and have coffee sometime? So it, there's, there's an impact if you can sort of get over your initial feeling like this is the only thing that's happening to you and that it's embarrassing and something to be ashamed of because it's not. Part of our work, I think, with all these supports is to honestly contextualize our lives. Right? We are all complex creatures. And as soon as you break through that barrier, which is, a, I think, a barrier of our ego and how will people think of us, immediately people come to you. And because of that, I think I've been revered in my career as a leader, an empathetic, compassionate leader. Um, so that's why I do it. I wouldn't say that everybody's like, oh, my gosh, let's talk about it in this moment. That's not how it happens. It still happens behind closed doors, but they sure are grateful that it's talked about at all. 
and that they can find some relief. That's great. Um, I, I wanted to follow up on that. Really, a question to both of you because there's there's some common threads in you know what what both of you had to say. Um, you know, Elizabeth, I know you, you touched on this moment where you realize you know the the, the firms and, and that 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 path just wasn't for you. And when you removed that sort of that that pressure, you you just felt so much better. And uh, you know, Jim, I know in your article you you write you know you say play the long game and kick your demons to the curb. You also write about um, on on one of your worst days on a piece of masking tape, writing this is a gift. Um, and, and sort of reframing the way that that you're that you're looking at things, and of course, Elizabeth, you just told us about you know seeing colleagues and judges at, at an AA meeting, and you know you wouldn't otherwise know that these people are are struggling too, and it, and it seems like it kind of hints at this, not hints, but sort of points quite glaringly at this issue in the legal profession, where you know, of course, we're all familiar with notions of prestige and in and, 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 and vanity and in appearing uh, you know to be someone who is uh, you know doesn't have these types of what are you know very normal problems um in, in appearances and in the distance between all of that and what you actually want and how you actually feel and trying to hide some of these things and trying not to show others and trying to act like you've uh, you know, you're on top of your game and it sounds like that creates a lot of pressure and a lot of dissonance for people. And, you know, you, you both kind of touch on that notion. So I'm just kind of curious, uh, and, uh, Jim, I guess we can go to you first, just, just your experience coming into the law and, and sort of encountering that, that sort of deeply embedded, uh, dilemma. Well, I think the question that you asked about the difference between maybe the resources that are available in today's law schools, which again, I say the same as Elizabeth, I applaud the school and the community for doing this. And the practice concerns me because I still see most of the issues in the transition from school to practice. Because, you know, you go into practice, whether it's big law or solo practice or, um, you know, most legal practices, the emphasis really changes in my opinion, to, um, you know, I hate to say it, but it's, if you're among other lawyers, it's a competition to be the smartest person in the room. You know, you're really, your stock and trade is your hard work, your intellect, um, you're very much in your head. There's a tremendous amount of pressure to work long hours. Um, the, the kind of, uh, if you will, safety net or the support system that you may have developed during school with a little bit more flexibility become harder to maintain, and the stakes seem to get higher, you know, because you're doing this as a, as a profession. You're doing it, you know, for a living. You might be supporting others while you're doing this. So I think, to me, that's where the real need is, because then you're more isolated. You know, you don't have the same community as walking into the dining hall or a common space in, in the law school and having, you know, people that you can connect with and, and be in community with. Um, and I think there is where more people suffer in silence. And there's where more people might be less willing to put their hand up and say, I'm really struggling. And the other part of it, in my opinion, is sometimes it's hard to differentiate the struggle from just learning to be a lawyer from the mental health struggle. You know, because it's hard. You know, what you're doing is hard. You're, you're translating all these academic skills into a practice. And there's going to be bad days. There's going to be very stressful days. How do you distinguish that between something that's unhealthy and ultimately something that would be very damaging to your mental health? And again, I, I don't know that there's great toolkits currently available in the profession. I do know there's a lot of 
talk about, you know, um, bigger firms setting up wellness um, positions and, and, you know, looking at mindfulness. But from people that I know that are active in this and are talking to those folks, the billable hour still wanes. And it's still, at the end of the day, you know, that's going to take precedence. There, there's a business here, and um, there, there can only be so much done to balance what's happening with, you know, the struggles of a law practice versus the need to be um, more aware of your personal needs. So, you know, that is something I'm concerned with. Hey, thanks, Jim. Uh, Elizabeth, we'll, we'll go to you. Yeah, I think to just be additive to what Jim shared, um, I think all professions right, particularly when you're being hired at the top of your license, the top of your game. No client wants to hear, oh, I struggle. (laughs) That's not in your first sort of interview for the client. And there's a place for that. I think it's why um, there are closed rooms and there are people that you can turn to in confidence and and privacy. It's very important. Um, And you see that this is a problem throughout our entire culture. Right. You, you often know, I'm sure many of us have run into people that we would say, oh, my gosh, this person is so arrogant. I don't want to be around them. Psychologically, that's a real tell. It masks a great deal of insecurity. Right. So that's actually an invitation to actually see if you can access some vulnerability within them and support. Right. So I think it's a lot to ask any profession. Right, to say, let's talk about this. It's easy for me to go in and do that. I'm at the, hopefully, the relative sunset of my career. Um, and I get to, you know, do a lot of interesting work and supervise hundreds of people. Um, that's easy for me. I didn't start out that way, right? And so using those avenues that are available to us that are private and confidential until you can gain that confidence within yourself to say that my value Um, is all of me, not just part of me. And I think that's the work. I mentioned this in 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 the piece that I did. The work is to integrate those parts of us that we're not particularly um, excited to have in our nature. But the more we work on that, starting perhaps more privately and then graduating to more public, the more balance as a culture we all can become. Hey, thank you. Hey, guys, this is Jim. Could I could I add something? Sure, absolutely. Go ahead. Just reminded me. Sure. You know, you, you asked earlier about um, what it may have been like sharing these experiences with others, mm-hmm. and there's two things that come to mind that are fairly instructive. One is um, when I was returning from the first episode of depression in 2009. I remember distinctly my HR VP, who was a friend, saying that what I most likely needed to do is just tell people I broke my leg because they hadn't told anybody why I was out. And I just found that really offensive because yeah. I was going to stand in front of everyone I worked with who were concerned that I literally just sort of disappeared one day and they hadn't come back for two months. And I was going to tell them a lie. And I was going to tell them a lie to not admit, you know, that I had any struggles or concerns. And, so in that case, I opted not to. I did tell them uh, a little bit of what I was going through. And then the second time when I returned in 2013, this was a different company, I decided to be much more open about it. And what I learned, it connects with what Elizabeth is saying about the whole person is, it actually 
connected me to more people in the business than I had been previously because suddenly people were sharing their stories of vulnerability. And, you know, I was a little bit more human to them. And I had more empathy for some of their struggles. And it actually, in my opinion, allowed us to have a much deeper relationship professionally than if I'm just, you know, the hard-charging lawyer guy. Um, and I was shocked by that. I really was. I, I didn't expect that to happen. I just kind of wanted to get on with my business. And um, I think it makes you a more empathetic leader. It makes you more authentic to the people you work with. And ultimately, I think it makes you more successful. Awesome. That's great to hear. 100%. Um, our supervisor, Nate, often calls law school a pressure cooker. And I don't think that feeling goes away. I don't think much. he's alone in calling it that either. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think that feeling goes away very much once you start practicing or just going on to your career, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, I was wondering if you guys had any advice for people who are struggling to take that first step to reach out for help, because I think it can feel like oh, everyone is feeling this pressure cooker feeling, so why should I go out for help sometimes? I can I can take a stab at that. Yeah. Um, I think life is a pressure cooker. Yeah. Particularly <laughs> the, the life that we live yeah. in our culture today. Um, we are moving so fast and with such high expectations and not a lot of dialogue right, that gets into the middle of things. We, we're very polarized. Um, so how do you deal with that? I think, and I, I shared this also in what I, I wrote, the bravest act that I could do was ask for help. And, and I, I would put it as sort of a challenge to your audience. If you go to somebody, a faculty member at BC or an alumni at BC, and perhaps even a fellow student, maybe not of your class, if that's not something that you feel comfortable with, and you say, I need some help and I need to talk, would you be willing to talk with me? Never in the history of ever will that person say, no, absolutely not, I don't have time for that. It just doesn't happen. So if you can overcome your own fear, and that's what I tried to share, this is something that all human beings encounter whether it's a form of anxiety or fear or depression or any of those things in high pressure cooker situations. This is life today. Um, if you can overcome that this is the only thing happening to me and no one else will understand and take that small risk, I promise there will be a wealth of support coming your way. Jim, do you have anything to say? I do. I mean, one of the things I know that um, can be very daunting, yeah. you mentioned all the resources at, at BC Law, and, and I know this is true in, in most universities now. It's still very difficult for many people to reach out to someone who might be considered more of a therapist or a professional. Um, and I think it's much easier to reach out and in fact, in my opinion, early on, much more effective to reach out to someone who's a peer, you know, as Elizabeth just mentioned, whether it's a colleague, a friend, um, just someone you trust that will understand you, will judge you, is empathetic, and making a connection. Um, 
One of the biggest pieces of feedback we got when we did the panel in the spring with the alumni was even the panelists saying, I felt better doing that because I felt like I wasn't alone. So to me, it's making that first step to establishing a connection, developing a relationship. You don't need to cure anything. You don't need to find answers. You just need to take a step to connect. Very good. If I could just add something. Sure, go ahead. Because I know there's a big part of, you know, people trying to find work. I can't speak for big law. That was not my path. Um, I will tell you, the candidate that tells me about their struggles or hints of their struggles in an interview goes to the top of the list for me. Because that emotional intelligence, right, that ability of self-reflection tells me so much about how they will be as a worker, as a peer, and as a leader. Um, so I did want to say that there are plenty of professions out there. Optum is one of them as a wellness company. We actually value that. Um, so don't just discount, right, because you think nobody would accept that. It's just not true. Many will. That, that's great. And I'm really uh... – that, that, that's really the right philosophy and it would be great if more and more folks looked at it that way and I like how you use the term emotional intelligence because at the end of the day all these conversations uh, necessitate a certain ability to, to lean into that emotional intelligence and, and to connect and it's it's really good to hear that there's organizations like that that, that, that put a value on that because you know in interviews certainly in law school where you have these very formulaic like OCI rigid interviews you know you're uh, people aren't thinking of going in there and talking about their struggles. They're trying to sort of compete and uh, fluff up their plumage and play to their strengths and compete with one another. And so I think that's a really great, a really great point. Um, I, I wanted to follow up on uh, something you both sort of um, touched upon in, in, you know, at least the high level, just sort of this distance between, I guess, what you could call, you know, the lip service that is sometimes, you know, paid to mental health. It's like, oh, you know, we have these resources and et cetera. And then, you know, Jim, you, you know, you, you pointed out, okay, well, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about it. We're trying to do something. But at the end of the day, the, the billable hours requirement is the same. At the end of the day, the, the curve in law school, the percent of people that are all f- fighting, angling, uh, you know, cutthroat with one another, trying to get a particular grade to get a particular job, the structural things seem to stand the test of time. While on the other hand, we're trying to, you know, we've got therapy and therapy dogs and we've got kind of, not to belittle those things, but at the same time, you have this fundamental tension between the structural um, inputs to these very real problems. And then, you know, what can sometimes feel like, you know, uh, some window dressing where we're, we're, we're trying to do something. But at the end of the day, those those root causes that that lead to this seem to still be there. And so as folks who have. You know, you you've had careers. You're uh, you know much further along than I. You know, we're still in school. Um, if you could just talk about in in the profession, the field, some of those structure. And I, I guess the the grading curve obviously has to relates to school. But um, if you could just talk a little bit about that that tension between some of these structural causes of these issues and sort of a, an inability, unwillingness, perhaps in the industry and in in, in law schools to to change those things um, versus talking about them and trying to without maybe addressing some of those root causes. Um, happy to start, sure. and then Jim would love to hear. You know, the arc of history is long, and it bends towards wholeness and wellness. Um, I, I cannot speak enough about the change in the generation, right, that you all are sitting in, many of you in law school today, um, and the willingness to talk about it. And I interview and hire most people right out of school, most people right up graduate school. 
And resoundingly, people are talking about it and more importantly, demanding it once they get hired. I share that because you're right. The structures are deep and rooted. Uh, We have one of the oldest professions in time. And it takes a while to change those things. But in the last five years, and then in addition, COVID has been a game changer for everyone. It took what was status quo, threw it out, and leader teams all over the world are sitting there going, we've got to do this better, right? Remote work is one of those examples. Uh, Before COVID, you know, United Health Group was one of those. Absolutely, you can have some telecommuting, but the preference is to be in the office. That's game over. That's not what we need. That's not what our employees demand. So if we want to retain talent, uh, we have to get up to the standard that you all are setting for us. And that's power. I don't think you have gone to law school just to do billable work. You've gone to law school to make an impact in people's lives and to make a difference. Continue to use that in the jobs that you experience. There are always employee action groups, other types of committees that you join every time you know people take on new employment. And we are listening in ways that we haven't listened to before. There is power in that and power in your voice. And if you can't share individually, I totally understand there's power in those groups um, because people are paying attention today and actually acting on that advice more than I've ever seen. And certainly in the 30 plus years that I've been working. Great. Thank you. Uh, Jim? Yeah, now I get to put a big, bucket of cold water in that, unfortunately, <laughs> from my point of view. Um, so for the last 20 years, I've bought legal services. You know, I've been in-house and I hire attorneys um, to do various work for us. I've done a lot of acquisition work. And I think for a significant portion of private practice, this structure that you mentioned is embedded and it's not going away anytime soon. And I think that's just something people to have need to have their eyes wide open for, right? So, um, and I think there's um, a dynamic in the marketplace. It's, it's uh, almost like a codependency between clients and their lawyers, where the bigger firms will always be set up so that it's 24/7 access, um, you know, constant availability, constant um, interruption of people's personal lives. And there's just too much money at stake, they think, to dare to change the model, to be the first. Mm. And, you know, I see that in various businesses that have been in. So it's not just one industry. But uh, I've seen that from the point of view of these associates who can't make plans to see friends, family, attend birthdays, uh, you know, anniversary dinners, because they're going to get called into a deal or, you know, to do something as foolish as draft an NDA because it has to be out tonight. So I'm a little skeptical and cynical about that. Having said that, my advice, and this dovetails a little bit to what Elizabeth was saying, is there's probably a bigger opportunity for lawyers to demand more. They may just not be able to do it in that environment. You know, there, there, are, there is more recognition in different areas of legal practice and outside of legal practice where you can be a whole person. Um, 
I think it would be very difficult to do within a big law environment or, you know, an area where your primary focus is going to be billable hours and commercial success. I, I just think the legal profession, through utter lack of imagination, has failed to come up with a billing model that allows for it. And, and you know, if I step back, so two jobs ago, I was in the manufacturing business. And we were lean and mean as manufacturing is, right? So manufacturing is based on productivity. You look at every single aspect of making a product, whether it's raw material, energy, you look at uh, quality, you look at packaging, you look at shipping. And in some respects, it's a pure exercise because everyone's attention is on how to make it at the highest quality for the least amount of cost in the least amount of time, okay? So you get in that mindset. And I remember this is back in the BlackBerry days. I was literally on the last seat of the plane, the one that kind of butts up against the toilet. And I got a bill from Aiken Gump, who was doing a corporate transaction with us. I was coming back from one of our plants in Minnesota. And it just, you know, it was shocking. It was, you know, the typical New York City bill, like $900 an hour. Was the BlackBerry screen big enough to see all the digits in that bill? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was just barely, right? So I... Started my email with, I'm sitting in the last seat <laughs> of the airplane next to the toilet. Until you sit in the seat next to me and understand our perspective, you cannot be an effective law firm for this company. Mm. Okay? We have yet to align private practice with our clients. I didn't need all that. I needed, in fact, I would have been more impressed with my law firm if when I went to visit them, well, by the way, I did visit them in New York City and it was stunning. You can imagine, right? Like overlooking, you know, uh, Central Park, huge <laughs> conference room. That's why that bill was so big. You're paying the rent, Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, exactly, right, right, right. And I said to them, I said, you, you come to our office because it, it is from the office. You know, we have the like, the gray cubicles. We haven't spent money on furniture in 20 years. You know, it's just, it's, I said, when you look like us, we're going to have a great relationship. But right now we don't. So it's a long way of answering that question. I think the structure is still there. I think, you know, these firms have gone through two global recessions. And for some reason, we keep feeding them. We keep coming back and saying, we need you. Um, they promise to do better. They're like the, um, you know, the abusive spouse. I won't do it next time. So my caution to everyone, it's a long story, is I don't think you're going to get that change in the next five years. I think if you care about yourself mm-hmm. and your whole self, you'll go and train somewhere, even if it's at a big firm, and then you will make a promise to yourself to be authentic to what you know you can do, whether it's in or out of the law, and you'll demand better. And that's not easy, but I think structural change is a long time coming, and I'm not optimistic. Thanks, Jim. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was great advice. Yeah, don't be sorry. Both of you guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, you know, therein lies the, the skill of law school, yeah. right? Yeah. We have two different perspectives, and where there's multiple perspectives, there's choice. Exactly. Right? And I think Jim has alluded to that. And it's hard. It's hard to make those choices. But there are options out there that are making a change. Sure. Um, 
depends on what side of the fence you're on. Sure. I just had a few final follow-ups. I wanted to touch on something, Elizabeth, you said about work from home. That's That's been a sort of a uh, with with COVID, just such a central part of this cultural debate about work and what work look, looks like. And, you know, you see some organizations where it's, you know, kind of this entrenched old school, you know, we're going to get everybody back in the office. You know, just this very, uh, you know, sort of relatively out of touch, it seems, philosophy on this. And there's other organizations that are flexible, you know, work from where you want. And we're, you know, sort of leaning into this, um, you know, very progressive moment in time in terms of uh, flexibility and, 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 you know, being very accommodating to workers and sort of realizing a lot of places have all this, you know, vestigial office space that we don't really know what to do with. And, you know, you know, how do you figure out what, what, what the future of all this looks like? You have very entrenched cultures, you know, uh, you also, you know, you guys talked about, uh, I think, I think it was Jim said, you know, that they're, they're terrified. They're scared to change the model. This idea of the, this business model and this business that is as old as time is, um, as, as one of you said, and I'm just curious about how, you know, of course these things don't change overnight, but it does seem like we're, we're at this inflection point right now where some places are making changes, maybe other, um, others are not, but I guess what is necessary in bringing about, uh, some of this, this change? I mean, you do have this old guard that, you know, as we've sort of discussed is, is resistant to, to changing the way things are done. Um, but what's necessary to bring about that change? How, how would it happen? Uh, I'll take a stab, and then sure. I know that uh, Jim will come on over the top. Uh, again, I can't speak for a big law. That was not my path. Mm-hmm. Um, I often use this phrase, in God we trust, everybody else bring data. <laughs> when you start to actually put costs to retention, mm-hmm. attrition, mm-hmm. the challenges of training up people, mm-hmm. um, by not allowing them to work at home and you're losing staff on a regular basis, it is far too expensive not to bend. Mm. Uh, so I take it from a business stance, uh, business case stance. And I think it's crucial, right? Because money talks and that's actually what carries. I, I'm not a big fan of working at home exclusively. Mm-hmm. I think we've been talking about isolation and depression. It's important that you actually meet your colleagues. You understand who they are and what makes them tick. And you often can't do that in, um, you know, in full telecommuting situations. Uh, I just lost my. Oh. What happened? Um, one second. One second. Technical difficulties. Sorry, Elizabeth, we can't hear you. One moment. Or Jim, if you want to jump in. Yeah, she said that you can go for it, Jim, if you want to yeah. jump in. <laughs> well, look, I, I, I completely concur with what Elizabeth saying. I think that the work from home, the hybrid, the recognition of flexibility is a game changer in any aspect, never mind law. But I know from our world, again, I hire a lot of people. Suddenly I have the talent pool that's limitless. You know, so I look at it from that point of view that, um, we've freed up our limitations on who we can work with, how we work with them. And we can also tailor this so that, again, some of these personal um, needs for people are met. A very quick story. I was based out of Indianapolis for a number of years, and we were hiring an environmental engineer. He was based in Pittsburgh. And he was saying all the right things he needed. He said, I'm going to move to Indianapolis. And I don't know. And I said, well, tell me about your family. So I have a daughter, and uh, she's a junior in high school, and she's great at softball. We do all these tournaments, and it's really important to her. And my wife is a, is a middle school principal. And, you know, my dad lives down the street. We grew up in Pittsburgh, and my son's in college, at, you know, right over the border in Ohio. And I'm like, why are you moving? <laughs> and he, he just, 
he kind of looked at me and said, no, look, I don't want you to move. It, it, it sounds like you're going to uproot your entire family just to please me. Um, you know, you, you have roots in that community. If I gave you the option to stay in Pittsburgh, you're going to have to get on a plane a little bit more. And we're okay with that. We'll pay for that. Could you do that? And it was just like this weight lifted up because he was trying to say all the right things. I said, no, I want you to be happy. And then you're going to be this great guy to work with. Because, you know, these are great, you know, I'm not going to rip your daughter out of her junior year in high school and put her to a school in Indianapolis that she has never been to. Take her away from her softball team, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and if we don't do more of that, we're going to really suffer. Um, and I do think COVID has shown us we can do it. So, yeah, I, I think that's part of the solution. I think there's more opportunity for lawyers to not need the infrastructure so they can be more independent, so less dependent on maybe joining a, a bigger firm or being part of a bigger organization. So the barriers to entry to compete are lower. And I also think, as I mentioned before, there's ways that you can be geographically in an area that's preferable to you or your family and practice somewhere else. So that's got to be a huge factor. Very good. Um, Elizabeth, are you back with us? Can you hear us? I can hear you. I'm Excellent. not sure you can hear me. No, we yeah, got you. Good. Loud and clear. Great. Um, okay. Well, we, uh, we Jim, Jim had a, a good answer for us there. Um, Sam, do you have anything you want to add? No, I think okay. I'm all set. Good. Um, well, just one last question. And again, we, we uh, thank you both so much for, for sharing and, yeah. and, you know, just, just kind of being kind of vulnerable with us and, and, and sort of giving all this uh, giving all this to us because at the end of the day, we're talking about something that's very stigmatized and conversations that folks often don't want to have. Um, right. And I think um, you talked about us demanding things, you know, when we become associates or whatever career path we um, enter into, but you guys being leaders and um, you're also demanding things for us, I mm. feel. And different things for the, the upcoming generation. So I appreciate that so much. And I know a lot of people definitely appreciate you. Um, for sure. Um, just the, the very last thing I wanted to ask, uh, you know, Jim, you, um, you, you told the story about, you know, when HR told you uh, to, to say you had a broken leg and, and in other words, to lie and not, you know, just be transparent about, you know, what was going on. And I think, I think you said that that, that took place in 2009. Um, I, I'm just curious, you know, first of all, that, that just sounds like a, just a terrible experience to have to go through and having to, you know, try to uh, have to be dishonest about, you know, what's, what's going on and having to go through all that. I'm just curious where things stand, you know, today, some 13 years later, you know, after that. And, and if you believe, you know, being in the field, if we are getting closer to a place where maybe you wouldn't have to say you had a broken leg and you could talk about um, what really happened. And if we're not quite there and maybe everyone's not there, how we get there and, and what that could be like. We're not there yet, mm. if I'm being honest. You know, I, I think that we're further along. I think, again, the more people that share their stories of vulnerability, imperfection, struggle, the closer we'll get. Um, I do think there's still a premium on keeping those things to yourself in the workplace, whether it's law or otherwise. I think, you know, there's a perception that showing weakness will erode confidence maybe in your work or put your position at risk. Um, again, I think the way to combat that is we have to teach our leaders from early on, even in middle management, as they're moving up the ranks, 
How are you people? What do you mean? How are you people? Yeah. What do you mean? Oh, well, I mean, do you check in with your people? You know, the people that work for you, do, do you, you know, how do you keep up with them? How do you connect to them? How do you talk to them? Well, you know, they do their work. No, no, no. I mean, do you know when one of the people you work with is having a bad day? You know, do you, are you aware of that? Are you um, aware of things that are important to them outside of work without being nosy? But you understand if there's something that may be um, is causing them concern. And, you know, do you know the whole person? Are you developing them so that they can be successful in this role? That, to me, is huge because you're, you're leading them. You're, you're showing what it looks like. Um, and if you get that from a person who is your leader, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable. And that's something we tried to model in my workplace. Instead of just doing performance reviews, you know, it was finding out about the whole person is critical. Good. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Elizabeth, do you have anything to add on there? Or, uh, should we, should we call it? No, I can add a, a couple sure. of things. I, I agree with Jim. It, it, we're not there yet. Um, this is going to take a while. I will tell you some of the signs that we're seeing that make a difference. Um, we are starting to see, certainly in my line of work, far more federal procurements, uh, requests for proposals, for initiatives and programs dealing with mental health and wellness and resilience coming out of the federal government. And why that's important is often the federal government spends money prior to commercial industry, right? So, so change is happening. And I will say that, you know, performance still matters, right? We, we all went to school. We all want to perform. And we can't just focus on wellness, you know, to the exclusion of anything else. Performance is important. I think the message is it's not the only thing that matters, right? And your performance is intimately related to how you feel about yourself um, and, and the psychological safety and supports that you feel that you have in your life. So I think while there is a tremendous amount of effort going on to sort of help shore up the performance of our employees, nothing can replace the, the shoring up of yourself. Um, with peer support, your friends, uh, other trusted advisors, I think it's, it's a critical. So it's always a balance. Thanks, Elizabeth. Uh, Sandy, what's the last word? All said. Thank All you guys set. so much for being here and sharing with us. Sure. Uh, well, this has been the BC Law Just Law podcast. I'm Tom Blakely here with Samantha Bear. We're very fortunate to be joined by Elizabeth Martin and Jim Warner. Uh, we really, and again, we always say thank you whenever guests join us, but particularly so to both of you for you know being open and somewhat uh, you know vulnerable to talk about something that is uh, difficult to talk to uh, talk about that's uh, stigmatized that uh, is in some form courageous to be able to come on and talk openly about these things in a profession where as we discussed people uh, are often uh, unable to do that so thank you thank you both a lot for for you know writing these pieces um, contributing to the conversation and being with both of us today thank you thank you, thank you very much uh, thank you for having us